How do marginalised voters, living in conditions of intense social and economic inequality, engage in electoral politics and improve their material conditions? Grounding her research in the context of Pakistan, IDS researcher Shandana Khan-Momad probes into this question by using original data collected across different villages and households in rural Pakistan. In this episode of Between the Lines, Professor Adam Albach from the American University in Washington, D.C., specialising in local governance, urban politics and the political economy of development, with a regional focus on South Asia and India, speaks with Shandana about her book, Savvy Voters, Crafty Oligarchs, Democracy Under Inequality in Rural Pakistan. Well, it's such a pleasure to be speaking today with Dr. Shandana Khan Moman um, about her new path-breaking book, The conventional understanding of politics in rural Punjab is that it is dominated by the landed elite. Poor voters who are often landless or situated on marginal plots are coerced into following the political direction of large landlords in their village who enjoy both local economic power as well as the social prominence that comes with titles like Malik and Chaudhary. With their coercive capacity, these landlords control poor voters in the village with an iron fist and deliver their votes to the candidate and political parties with whom they are aligned. Dr. Mohman's book shatters this conventional thinking. She finds that political agency among poor voters varies substantially across villages in rural Punjab, even within the same district. Her book pushes us to look at the multifaceted relationships that connect village leaders and their followers, which cut across several dimensions, including kinship, economic dependence, and clientelistic ties. She finds that in those villages with less inequality, voters tend to have considerably more political autonomy than their counterparts in villages that have more intense land inequality and social dominance by elites. The book rests on a deep historical examination of the colonial origins of land tenure institutions in rural Punjab. To this historical research, Dr. Momand adds sustained qualitative fieldwork and survey research across several dozen villages. Well, Shandana, I enjoyed and learned so much from your book. Before delving into your arguments and findings, though, I'd like to first ask you about the path that led you to writing the book in the first place. So what sparked your interest in rural local politics in Punjab and motivated you to write a book on the subject? That's a really interesting question, Adam, and thank you so much for, for speaking to me about my, my book and for starting on that question, actually, because there is a very deep history to, to the book, and um, it's the, my journey to Sargodha district, where this book is set in central Punjab in Pakistan, has gone through a number of other districts um, all over Pakistan, in fact, and where I started working in about 2003, I'd say, um, soon after a set of reforms on decentralization that the re military regime of uh, General Musharraf had instituted in 2001. And together with colleagues like Ali Chima, who was at LAMS at that time, as was I, as well as Haris Gazdar, who was at the collective in Karachi, who's still there, we realized that there was very little scholarship on rural Pakistan. And this to me was a very large gap because of the fact that we acknowledge the fact that most of the population, especially at that time, was still rural. There's a huge demographic shift that is underway, but the population is still largely rural. And so we can extrapolate from that to imagine that when somebody decides who's to rule at the center, those are rural citizens making those choices. And yet we understand so little 
about how they vote, why they vote. And if we buy the big story on their voting behavior, which is that it's all really the politics of dependence, then what does that say about um, politics in Pakistan in general, but also then why are they voting? Is it really just about the fact that they're being forced out or is there some sort of other story there that we didn't quite understand at that time? So my, my, uh, my um, interest in rural politics at that time seemed quite um, a, a natural thing in the sense of um, in the sense of the fact that there wasn't very much available on it on this and it was a glaring gap. <laughs> Um, thanks so much for that fascinating background, uh, Shandana. You also get a part of this in those really um, evocative vignettes that you provide at the beginning of, of the book. My next question is, is more methodological in focus. Well, one of the really impressive facets of the book um, is its rich multi-method foundation. You combine large and representative household surveys, you do in-depth case studies, you do qualitative interviews, historical narratives that trace the land tenure institutions in rural Punjab, all the way back to the, from the colonial period to the present day. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about how did you settle on this really innovative multi-method research design? And why did you initially sort of, you know, think that it was gonna be so important to draw on these different types of methods to study political behavior in this research setting? Adam, I'm always very excited when somebody asks me about the methods um, that this uh, book draws on, uh, because I think that's, that's one thing I feel I got right here in the sense that methods really should flow from the question and methods really should flow from the challenge that you're facing. Um, and in this case, the challenge was of trying to explain concepts such as bargaining power of rural voters or forms and types of political engagement between political leaders at the village level and voters at the village level. And none of these are very easy concepts. So they are not self-explanatory. There isn't past literature. There aren't large databases. Um, so we realized very early on um, that it was going to take quite an effort and we would have to come at this from many different angles. And it was very organic. The process was very organic. So I'll uh, mention, um, I'll, I'll mention them in exactly the way they are in the book, which actually is the way we did most of this um, research. Um, is so the first, the very first one is is a longitudinal um, study in one village, and that literally is where we started. And the reason for that is is the fact that this village had been studied before. And we realized that to help us understand how village politics works, these previous studies were going to be really important. And there are a few other village studies, but this village in particular seemed really compelling because of the fact of these, of these past studies being available. And I went off there with a small research team and uh, we studied that village in great detail over a period of almost a year of spending a lot of time there to try and understand these concepts. And as we started to understand them, the big question of course for us then was, is this the way politics works everywhere? Is this the politics of one village or is this the politics of, of you know, other villages in this area? And so we went off to different kinds of villages and realized with each one that the politics was changing. And that's when you start to think about what are the reasons for this. And as you know, the book eventually suggests that the main reason that politics varies is the, the colonial pattern of land settlement and how social authority was dispersed across different groups. And that social authority has sort of put into place um, these structures of authority that dictate how people or determine 
and condition how people are going to vote. And that started to emerge as we move from village to village. But then of course, it leads to another question, which is, is this a generalizable pattern or is this the story of a few villages and, and something specific to these villages that we're catching? And that's when we decided to do a larger study across the same district, but of a much larger number of villages. And at this point that was possible. It wouldn't have been possible earlier because we didn't quite have a grasp of the concepts then of, of um, you know, political engagement and what it really looks like. But once we were able to determine that, it's easier to then, then construct surveys and to be able to move beyond that to a much larger set of villages in which you can work at a faster pace. So we went from spending one year in a village um, to, to doing sort of these quicker surveys across a large group, but that took a very organic process of learning and innovating and, and I guess adapting to make sure that we were getting at the real politics of this area. Um, well, it's, I mean, it's such a masterclass in multi-methods research, um, and and actually, um, I'm I'm really looking forward to teaching the book in, in my own field research methods class. So <laughs> I, I might try to uh, t talk you into speaking to some of my students. But uh, thank you. So Shandana, to turn now to your argument and findings, the concept of the vote block sits really at the core of your book's analysis. You define vote blocks as territorially bounded, village-level informal institutions that are organized and led by local political intermediaries. They have one primary function, you say, to organize village politics by deciding who their members will vote for and what they will receive in return. So I have a few questions um, about vote blocks, how they operate and how they change over time. First, how do people signal to vote block leaders and to also their fellow villagers that um, what their membership um, in the vote block is? Is this something that is publicly discussed and declared um, I imagine that in some cases, declaring public membership in a vote block might be really critical for securing public services. Uh, for example, if the political candidate tied to your voting block wins, you know, you want to be known as a strong vocal supporter of that vote block leader. In other cases, um, it might be more prudent to be tight-lipped about which vote block you belong to, to give yourself wiggle room after what might be a really close ele election. So can you talk a bit more about um, how is membership in vote blocks discussed in villages, um, both among sort of everyday ordinary voters in the village um, and between voters and vote block leaders? Let me start by saying that the, the easiest way to understand this quite complex idea of the vote block and how it functions is to think of it as an, a strategic attempt by, by poor villagers, uh, by everybody in a village actually, but specifically it sort of helps empower more marginalized groups, but it is to be understood as a strategic attempt at dealing with inequality and the very unequal circumstances under which um, they live. So. I argue in the book that it has helped empower them, but I do not want to put the vote block across as the solution to the issue of inequality in, in Pakistan. And I guess we'll come to that slightly later in the conversation of what then is the solution to this. But the vote block works because it serves a very strategic purpose for almost everyone involved within that, from the leader down to the members and the membership and what sort of benefit they get out of it varies a lot by their socioeconomic status. Um, so it ends up being a bit of both of the things you mentioned. A, you want to make it very public to the leaders specifically, 
um, who you are siding with, whether or not you're a member of their block, because voters recognize that benefits will come to a village through these blocks. This is not a country in which rural services are being delivered through any universal um, non-discretionary rules. So people recognize that things come to villages because vote block leaders are able to negotiate services. So you then want to be able to signal to this leader that you are voting for them. That's the one thing they want from you is that you vote with them. And so you want to be very public about the fact that you are with them, that you're voting for them. But there's a lot of competition which so, like you said, you want to maybe hedge your bets a little bit. Um, and some do that quite um, well. Others, others will show sort of more stability across a few elections because they're tied through other connections to the vote block leader, such as kinship or maybe economic dependence of some variety or old family ties and loyalty and all of that. Everything enters the equation. But let me give you these two cases in which we noticed that people were doing exactly what you said in terms of hedging. One is in this village that is actually deeply factionalized across these two very strong and almost equal sized factions. And that was only one of six villages where we saw that. And the reason why I want to mention that is most people think that that kind of a factionalization is the usual story and the way in which it's usually explained. But out of the six case study villages, it was this one village that we saw um, fit that idea of factionalization. And within this village, we came across about 300 voters of the um, middle caste of voters who neither vote block leader could claim as their own. And, and these vote block leaders were very interested in our surveys because they wanted to see if through the surveys they could determine who these people were actually voting with. And needless to say, we were very careful with the surveys. Um, but they, they, they said that they were being, you know, that each one thought that they were voted, that they, they, this group of 300 voters was going to vote with them. And they were very tightly knit. These 300 were really working together. Um, and, but at election time, they were regularly surprising one or the other. And we noticed over the years that the difference between which vote block actually ended up getting votes for their candidate in the national election really depended on these 300 votes. And so these guys were sort of playing their rivalry, the, the rivalry of the vote blocks against each other. Um, but they but they was trying to assess right to the end who was going to strike a better deal with them. Right. So they were not declaring to anyone at all. And the other case in which we noticed that there was some secrecy around this and that there wasn't an open declaration of um, membership was in the case of this one village, which I call Chuck One in the book, um, in which we observed class politics. And this again was only one of the six case study villages in which we found a very strong case of class politics. So one vote block had all the Chaudhrys or landlords in it, and the other vote block had all of these more marginalized groups within it and was almost entirely um, structured around them. And the Chaudhrys, the landlords told us after some while that it had taken them many years to realize that their own domestic staff, agricultural workers, who they all thought were part of their vote block because of their economic dependence, were actually voting on the other side because the numbers were not adding up. So they said, you know, my own manager of my fields is of my farm is no longer voting with me. He's voting with the, the, the vote block of the marginalized, but he's never admitted this to me, right? And he's not going to talk about it openly, but we've started to realize that our calculations are completely off. 
So, but other than these sorts of instances, it is a public activity and you want to do that because it is a strategic activity and you want to use your membership in order to attract um, public services to your group. Oh, so interesting. And, you know, the, the case studies in the book do such a good job at sort of, you know, rendering these actors and these, you know, patterns, but also sort of interesting idiosyncrasies of some of the localities, you know, that you studied. If I can tag one question onto that, you know, one, one of the group of voters that I found to be um, really interesting are those that explicitly stay out of um, vote block politics, which if I remember is, is around 20% uh, or so. Um, could you say a little bit more about, you know, who, who are these people um, in the village that sort of stay out of, you know, what is the dominant form of political organization in these rural spaces? So I was really interested in this and we did spend some time trying to figure this out and we don't we didn't get very strong results on them so across most kinds of divisions that you can think of across most kinds of variables. Um, pretty much people were participating in vote blocks, but the one group that we could separate was that there was a small difference in age so younger voters were staying out of vote blocks. But the strongest result is on what you could call a professional category. So those that had um, linked up to jobs outside the village, but were in more professional categories. So not, um, not in the agricultural sector anymore, but not even businesses. So these would be teachers. Some of them were lawyers. Some of them may be working in the health sector. Um, and that group had um, showed the strongest results in terms of not being part of a vote block. Really interesting. It'll be, um, yeah, I think it'll be fascinating to see, you know, are these budding sort of Nayanethas, um, as Anirudh Krishna calls them, sort of these, yeah. these new local political entrepreneurs in the village that sort of are breaking the mold. Um, but Shandana, um, you know, our, our, this discussion right now really provides a nice foundation for my next question. Um, the relationship between vote block leaders and voters um, are underpinned by, you know, both social, social and economic ties that, you know, to me at least, you know, at first seemed like they'd be very glacially changing over time. So things like kinship networks, clientelistic ties, you know, which can be very durable, economic dependency, of course. Um, this would suggest that vote blocks, you know, are essentially static from election to election, you know, that they don't change. However, you find that the number and the size of vote blocks do change over time. Um, so what, what drives those changes, not only in the number of vote blocks, but the distribution of public support across them over time? Um, it's, it's a great question, Adam, and the response isn't very straightforward. The answer to that isn't very straightforward because it really requires you to get into all of these different linkages. But um, I'll start by saying that the linkages uh, that are suggested by kinship politics, by clientelism, by economic dependency work very differently from each other. So you can imagine that economic dependency is, is a long time term linkage unless you can break that off and go and work in the city or just get a different kind of job. But, um, but what I call kinship linkages work um, are not as deeply embedded. And clientelism, as we know, if you, if you can have two competing patrons, then that can be a quite dynamic and shifting relationship. And in these villages, I try and explain the fact that kinship networks actually work very well with clientelism in what I call a two-step process. So kinship works 
um, not in terms of these sort of very large kinship networks that will go across village boundaries. They work in terms of collective action in the form of collective action within the village to try and increase your importance through the, through the number of votes that you can bring together in your group. And then you use that number of votes to leverage of um, to, to negotiate with a patron. So if you have two or three competing patrons, landlords in a village, then these are the numbers that you would then use. Your kinship network is what you would use to then get into a clientelistic relationship with someone. So even though it sort of suggests that, you know, kinship is something that should assure you some stability over time, what it essentially is, if seen from above, is a clientelistic relationship. It, it, it's, it's just with a larger group of people who are all acting together. Um, so in that sense, these can be very, very dynamic. But I think the difference that um, I really want to focus on here is the fact that even though you'll be able to find each type of linkage in almost every village, there is a real difference in the magnitude. So in very unequal villages, you will find more clientelistic linkages. And in more equal villages, you realize that it's the kingship collective action that takes over. And I think that's what I really wanted to bring out in the book is that even in villages that sit right next to each other within the same district, um, based on how unequal the village um, is, um, based on how the land was settled many years ago and how social authority is distributed, the type of linkage that you see can actually vary quite a lot. So there is a very steady relationship um, between being a more unequal village and having more um, links of clientelism and then being a less unequal village and having more links of these horizontal collective action based kinship based solidarities. Thanks, and I mean, that, that was really one of uh, my favorite chapters in the book. Um, you know, this theoretical framework that you provide that's so deeply empirically grounded and how do these things change over time? Um, and I just think it's, you know, an immensely important contribution in, in understanding how political networks more generally, particularly in these sorts of unequal settings do change over time, that they're not, they're not totally static. On the topic of clientelism, you know, so scholars have highlighted that a core dilemma in clientelistic politics is the ability of politicians and you know, intermediaries like the vote block leader to monitor the, the political behavior of their clients. So in other words, how do politicians actually come to know that voters have followed through on their end of the bargain? So in the context of rural Punjab, how, if at all, do vote block leaders actually seek, if, if they do at all, to monitor how the voters within their block actually do cast their ballot? This, this is a major question for us. This was the whole time, the, one, the idea of, um, you know, why don't more people turn out to vote? And then how does anybody know how they vote? So you'll have vote block leaders claim all the time that they know exact numbers, that they can tell you um, just by looking in someone's eyes how they voted. So the claims can go all the way to that extent. And there are some very severe cases of um, landlords demanding. So this is this is a case that we actually had. The landlord puts his chair outside the, the, the window that has been set up as the voting booth um, in the village, usually the public school. And they'll break the window and put a chair outside and each person who comes into the booth has to hold up their, their uh, paper to show that they voted. Um, and that's how they monitor it. But this is such an extreme case and is not the norm at all. Most of the rest of it really requires a lot of contact, a lot of 
maintaining loyalty, seeking loyalty, then delivering on that promise. So it's not just landlords holding voters accountable to the vote, but voters also making sure that they know that the landlord knows that we're only with you and we will remain with you as long as you're useful to us as well. So it's a bit of monitoring on both sides that's that's going on. But in terms of the turnout question, the the you know, the difference really comes down to the fact that turnout is an individual um, measure, whereas membership in a vote block is a collective measure. So it's enough for one or two people from your household to vote for you, to, for your household to be considered a member of that um, of, of that vote block. And you don't really need everyone to come out and vote. And we noticed that landlords don't really put in that much of an effort into turning out the vote as one might expect. Um, this especially around women. Women are not uh, pushed as much as one would expect um, to vote, but also elderly migrant workers who have to come back to their village to vote as well. So we ran some maths on this and you know, if a household, an average size of a household in Punjab is six people out of which there are 3.4 adults. So if you imagine that one or two adults are voting from each household um, and the others are either sort of unable to or are not in the village at the time, then it comes to the 50, 60% numbers that we usually see for turnout. And so the maths kind of adds up there. They're really interesting and I, and I you know, one of the many, many takeaways uh, for me of the book, and I think one of the important analytical contributions to the book is to think more seriously about the household as a, as a, as a political unit. Um, and you know, it, it really nicely echoes some of the work by Sarah Khan, you know, also in, in thinking about these sort of you know, family, you know, households level dynamics and how they intersect with you know, larger you know, sort of forms of politics. So on, on, you know, on this theme of, of, uh, of, of parties and clientelism, you know, in reflecting on the weakness of local party organizations in rural Punjab, you write that vote block members and their leaders may identify with political parties, but they're not organized by them. So I'd be curious, you know, to hear your thoughts on as, as Pakistan's democracy hopefully continues to consolidate, how do you anticipate the parties will deepen their organizational presence um, at the grassroots level in rural Punjab? Um, and if they do, what do you think the implications of that will be for, for vote block politics? So Adam, as you know, this is a big question in political science for us, right? Should we consider that all democracies will consolidate in the same way? Um, or now what we're sort of thinking about is, has, has you know, are today's dynamics going to be different from the way we understood um, democracies consolidating in the 1980s, for example, or through the 1990s? And I think that's a little bit of what we're sort of thinking about here is that the answer to your question will really depend on whether um, parties consolidate around machine politics through these networks of brokers and whether these landlords just naturally go from people who can move between parties very fluidly right now to becoming more loyal party brokers that organize the vote not for themselves and their own vote blocks, but for the party uh, more specifically. Um, whether, whether that's the way they'll go, whether parties will organize around machine politics, or whether they are actually going to start consolidating around the politics of populism, which is what we're seeing now, which is the idea, which is the politics of ideas, and whether that's the direction in which the trajectory is going. And the reason why I mentioned time is because we're seeing quite an impact of, of the media, of, of television, of WhatsApp nets, networks, of, of phone coverage. Right, and of course, then of social media, and these have a presence in rural areas as well. And 
I think it will be a while before it gets to rural Pakistan, but in urban Pakistan, we're certainly seeing politics are moving quite swiftly in the direction of ideas and popular uh, populism, um, rather than the, the idea of these sort of you know deep machines and networks of, of brokers. Um, but in rural Pakistan, uh, we, I, I, I would really like to go back, for example, very soon to see what difference um, has happened. So the book stops with a very initial look at the 2018 election, but not very deeply and just sort of commenting on it, but the deeper analysis is of the 2013 election. And my sense is that even just in these last you know, seven years, um, I think we should be able to see differences. So I'd be quite curious to go back to see if that's the direction in which it has started um, to consolidate. But one thing that I would like to say is that we really have, are not on that sort of smooth trajectory at all. One is because of the role of the military in Pakistan and with the manipulation of political parties that's still going on very strongly, but also because we've been in a very different politics in the 1970s. So in the 1970s, it was very much about parties directly organizing rural votes. So it's not that we haven't seen that politics before in Pakistan. We've been there. And then over time, through everything that the political parties went through, through their marginalization, through the manipulation, of political parties by the military, we saw this weakening and the personalization of politics around personality rather than political party. Um, so we've been through this entire process that's created the politics that's in the book right now. But where we go from here then depends on the question also of which direction the parties now start to consolidate in and um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it will be obviously a, a crucially important process to follow um, going forward. So Shantana, what I'd like to do now is briefly put your book in the conversation with another book that I'm a huge fan of, uh, Gabrielle Crooks-Wisner's uh, Claiming the State, Active Citizenship and Social Welfare in Rural India. Um, so Gabby's work, um, you know, in some similar way, seeks to understand how people engage the state to access public services. I mean, part of her argument centers on the importance of social and spatial exposure, that meeting people outside of one's own social group um, and, and really traveling outside the village for work or otherwise expands one's, you know, and I quote now, um, encounters with knowledge of and linkages to the state. This develops their aspirations toward the state and their capabilities for state targeted action. So in some of your case study villages, you know, there appears to be considerable spatial movements uh, between villages and nearby towns. So you know, I'm wondering, do you find that those villagers with that kind of greater social and spatial exposure are more active in village politics? You know, do they carve out more autonomy for themselves within, within their own vote block? Um, yes, but let me, let me start on a slightly different note, which is that's exactly why um, I actually included a variable for picking villages and the sample. Uh, one of the, there's essentially three variables that I look at and that dictated the sample of villages. One was land inequality, the other was social structural inequality. And the third one was distance from a town for exactly this reason is that I thought that inequality of opportunity based on how many jobs are available to you should really change the way you behave politically and your relationship with your landlord. And yes, we do see that more remote villages may have a more coercive politics. Um, but overall, this is not a systematic finding. We do not see that effect systematically. The real effect really is of that historical inequality uh, in terms of the dispersion of social 
authority across the village and how villages were um, settled historically under colonial rule. So the, the variable of distance didn't really have the same effect. But as I mentioned earlier, there are groups, um, professional groups, for example, in a village that are opting out. And that very much is because they've managed to exit the village economy and find other kinds of jobs. But you'll notice that I said opted out rather than trying to lead the vote block. So what they're actually doing is exiting this kind of politics. They're choosing not to be in a vote block. So they're not choosing to lead them. They're actually saying, I don't want this kind of politics. I'm an independent voter. I'm going to pick my own um, um, you know, candidate. I want to engage directly with political parties and I don't want to engage with the vote block leader at the village level. So they're actually exiting that group. Um, but we did, of course, find, you know, I don't want to say that we didn't find emerging vote block leaders. There is a good section of the book that deals with these emerging leaders. But in terms of voters that can exit, they are choosing um, to, to, to exit to some extent. But the big difference, and I'm a huge um, fan of, of uh, Gabby's book as well, and I think that finding is so powerful. Um, of the effect of networks, but I think the real difference between there is a real difference between politics in rural India and politics in rural Pakistan, and that's um, connected to what we were just talking about slightly earlier, which is the, the institutionalization of political parties and the extent to which political parties are a part of politics and political life, and that simply hasn't happened in the same way in Pakistan because of how unstable the history has been and how. Quick, uh, how often and regularly we've moved between military rule and democracy in Pakistan. And the other thing that's a huge difference between Pakistan and India is decentralization and the presence of local government. And so politics exists at the village level in a very different way in India because of the stability, not just the presence of local government, but the stability of the structure of local government. And again, we haven't really seen that. So at the time that this book was written, there was local government and it was a quite sort of, you know, it, it was a good system, but it hasn't been stable. So um, that also changes how local government functions. And I think that's why you wouldn't see the same sort of effect in, in Pakistani villages as you would in, in Indian villages. Thanks, Shandani. Yeah, lots of thought-provoking comparative insights yeah. there. So if I can slightly switch tracks, in describing your, your survey, you note that women frequently hesitated to discuss their own political preferences um, and instead often pointed to uh, their husbands to discuss these issues. So specifically, you write, in village after village, we realized that politics was a subject that women left to their men. So can you tell us a bit more about, you know, how do women in, in rural Punjab navigate uh, vote bank politics, vote block politics, excuse me, to advance their individual and collective interests? Um, and does the answer to this, you know, vary depending on the socioeconomic class, you know, of, of the individual? Everything in rural Pakistan varies with socioeconomic class. That is a major part of the book is which caste you are, com, in the case of Pakistan, will dictate um, how you engage with village politics and what kind of bargaining power you have. And that will apply to women as, uh, as well across the classes. But within a, the same class group, women are generally sort of, they're not in a position to dictate um, the politics of the family. 
and that will be men who are making those decisions and engaging. And women were usually telling us that I don't remember who I voted for, or I voted for whoever I, the men in my family had decided for, or I did, or I do remember, but I know that it was exactly what the older men in the family had decided to do. I voted in exactly the same way. So it was in that sense that we said that they were not engaging. Women do go out and vote, not as much as men maybe. There is a big gender gap in Pakistan, but they were not making the decision. And so they're not using that politics to actually strategically work towards their own individual or collective goals. But having said that, um, one of the vote blocks in a village is headed by a woman. She's the vote block leader of it. It's come down to her through the men in her family, but she is the power broker of her uh, village. And she has used that to get into ministerial positions in, the, in provincial politics. And in another village as well, um, there was a lot of, so, you know, at the front of the vote block were all these men, but you realize that the real power sat with this person I call Bibi in the book, and she dictated the politics. Uh, but she, again, she's from the landed family. So women of landed families, we have cases of them um, play, um, sort of determining politics and being very active in politics. There was also a very small vote block led entirely by women and of women. So there was only women in this one vote block, but that is the only vote block. So of the 71 vote blocks in the book, there is one that is of women by women. Um, other than that, women are not making decisions. Thanks, Shandana. To turn now to more of a, a policy question. So, you know, you know, having, you know, in, in reading the book, you know, I really oscillated back and forth between, you know, feeling optimistic and then pessimistic and then back again about this changing nature of local politics in rural Punjab with respect to the political autonomy of voters. So clearly, um, in some villages, less inequality has expanded voters, you know, room to maneuver, granting them, you know, much more autonomy and political agency, you know, vis-a-vis -vis these uh, vote block leaders. And in other villages, of course, you know, more closely approximate that popular notion of you know, a more rigid feudal politics. So what, what policy lessons do you think your book holds for efforts to deepen democracy and expand the political autonomy of voters in rural Pakistan? The oscillation I can fully understand, Adam, because the findings of the book are essentially saying two very different things. And, you know, it's that variation that the book tries to focus on. So the conclusion of the book is, in what I call proprietary villages, the unequal ones, there hasn't been that much change and politics is still quite vertically organized. But if levels of inequality are lower, what I call crown villages, politics has opened up to create a lot of space. And then the other variation is that politics, wherever it has opened up, has opened up in terms of inclusion. So you're now more willing to bring more people into the vote block, but not in terms of contestation. So leadership positions are not with more marginalized groups. So they're certainly part of vote blocks, they're making demands, they're being very vocal in their demands, but they're not leading vote blocks. So inclusion has happened, contestation hasn't opened up. So, you know, it's, it's that sort of lukewarm um, sense of how excited do I want to be about politics. I do suggest that it is a lot more open and competitive, and there is more bargaining power than, than the usual literature on Pakistan suggests. But of course, there's a long distance to go. And I'd say that there are really three things. I mean, I personally am a huge believer in the fact that 
this now requires political parties to organize constituencies at the village level and to do it directly and to speak the language of politics that appeals to um, these groups, to marginalized groups, to poorer groups, to take up a politics that really does speak to them. And instead, political parties in Pakistan have been much more focused on their own survival vis-a-vis -vis, uh, military, um, the, the military. And because of that, there hasn't been that kind of connection between them. So that's certainly one, this sort of building of upward linkages, uh, stronger upward linkages and con constituencies. The other one is decentralization. I'm a huge believer in that as well. Not so much, uh, well, both because of public services being delivered more effectively, because I think that just takes the wind out of the politics of um, vote block leaders, but also because of just democratizing politics. So just bringing it into villages in a more, you know, to create a more dynamic politics. And in the years when we were writing this book, we saw the change that formal structures of power can make for marginalized groups, um, where positions opened up, where power sat with the, the um, we, call, we called it the Nazim, it was essentially the mayor of a union council. People changed their behavior very quickly from making demands on landlords to making demands on these formal um, officials now to those that had been elected. So, and that change was so swift. So you realize that a lot of these things can change, but the structures simply don't exist. So I think local government, parties organizing it, and then of course the two things that are going to determine social mobility, which is education and health. So improving that as well. And I think those four things across them is where the answer really lies. So it's about reducing inequality in all of these senses of allowing you know, um, more power across these four areas. Thanks, Shannon. Yeah, I was so excited to hear your response to that question you know, because you're, you're so uniquely positioned to you know, be able to <laughs> say where things should be going. Um, so I know that a lot of your current work um, has shifted geographic focus to urban Pakistan um, and Lahore in particular. And, you know, as you know, in, in other conversations, I'm extremely excited, you know, about this work and look forward to, you know, continuing to follow it. But, um, you know, for now, I'd, I'd love to know, to what extent do your findings from, you know, your book, you know, situated in rural Punjab, resonate um, in the mega city of Lahore um, in terms of how local politics is organized or, or otherwise? Politics are very different um, between rural and urban areas. And uh, it's great to be actually able to talk about that because the sense um, of talking about Pakistan is that there is a huge demographic shift. There's huge urban, there is a fast pace of urbanization. And yet we talk about politics being almost the same. So we talk about clientelism in urban areas like we do in rural. And we talk about baradri and kinship networks in, the, in, in urban areas like we do in rural areas. But we've started to, in, in our recent work, we've realized that I think the story is quite different. Um, and two pieces of, uh, two findings that I'll give you just very quickly to give you a sense of that, and this is work that's still developing. Uh, one is that we found women participate less in urban areas than they do in rural areas. And that's counterintuitive, but that's uh, apparently the result for India as well. And the reason for that, I think, is what um, Sole Prilliman calls family-centered clientelism. And it's something I mentioned earlier, is that clientelistic networks of vote blocks will still try and pull people out in, of families. So that kind of sort of organization still puts some pressure on families to try and turn out the vote. 
But in urban areas, that doesn't function like that anymore. Clientelistic linkages are far weaker. And brokers don't put in that much of an effort to contacting um, people or turning out the vote in quite the same way. And we realize that women are being left out of that politics. And women are disengaging from politics in urban areas. So because clientelism may be lower, um, the need to sort of pull women out, out as part of those clientelistic networks is lower and we're finding much higher levels of disengagement of women in urban areas. And the other difference um, in a paper that I know you, you, you've read, Adam, is, is the fact that um, the party seems to make a much larger difference to people's voting choices, um, at least their selection of, of leaders then um, <laughs> linkages of um, based on their person, uh, personality or their own connectivity or their own personal attributes. So which party they belong to matters a lot more, which, uh, which is sort of um, in reinforcing our sense of the fact that parties matter and it's the party identity or the politics of the party that seems to matter in urban areas in a way that it doesn't in rural areas. Really extremely important, you know, observations there, and you know, really uh, encouraging the need for you know place-based theories um, of, of local political organization. So, Shandana, you, you gave us a, a sense, you know, even in your response um, on what my you know my last question for you is, um, you know, how is your research agenda moving forward now? You know, what what are you working on? Um, yeah. My interest in writing the book was to explore inequality and I'm sort of continuing in that area, but like you said, in urban areas more, in Pakistan more. So we're looking at women more and more and considering um, inequality, political inequality of in women's political participation. And we're also now looking at um, state citizen linkages around the idea of trust. Um, and how that may be affected by inequality. And um, also very recently started looking at uh, informal sector workers and their engagement with the state, especially during um, COVID. Um, so it's all based in urban areas now, but focused very much on how inequality impacts politics. Well, Shanana, thank you so much for this fascinating discussion. Um, you know, I, of course, really enjoyed it. And you know, I look forward to continuing to follow your important work. Thank you so much, Adam, for this. I'm thrilled to be able to talk about my book with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. Between the Lines is brought to you by the Institute of Development Studies. Follow us on Twitter at IDS underscore UK or visit IDS.ac.uk.